Change over time is one major universal truth. We are always in the process of becoming. This process of becoming can be a reason for great joy, but it can also cause some anxiety or even heartbreak. This is Logos-ish. Today we explore American Christianity's process of becoming as it approaches life in the 21st century with Reverend Dr. David Lose. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. It's John. I've got Brian on with me today. We are returning from a brief two-week break, and we are glad to be back. We are glad to be back recording. We are glad to be functional and running around, and it's good also to be in the post-Easter season in our church settings, so I think we're all Hallelujah. relaxed. <laughs> Brian, you look more relaxed after your, what was it, an over 80-hour week? I, I had an extensive week finishing up renovations at the garden and getting us to our first in-person service in a long time. I actually got to meet some of my people in my appointment. How nice is that? And, and you know, we celebrated Jesus too. Like it, it was a good week. It's so weird that you've been there for a year and you've basically met nobody in person. Well, as of, you know, early in the morning on Sunday, I had only met like maybe 35 people from my church and 55 people showed up. So, you know, I did pretty good. How are you doing with names? Are you keeping track of people? Oh no, that's a lost cause. Like, that's not, that's not happening. Just in general or right now? Well, having worked in a larger church before coming to the garden, like you learn leaders' names, you learn lots of other things, but that's a topic for a whole nother podcast episode. Fair enough, fair enough. So you've heard it here first, folks. We're going to talk about learning people's names in a future podcast episode, a really juicy, informative <laughs> topic. And in reality, I would bet you that that rabbit hole would be weirdly fascinating to go down. It feels like all the things that we explore on podcasts, of all those things, the best things are almost always the weirdly mundane topics. But let's go ahead and bring in our guest today. Our guest is Reverend Dr. David Lose. We are talking about the American religious landscape uh, religious affiliation and the the future of the American Christian Church in particular. Dr. Lose, how are you doing today? Or should I call you David? David is just fine. Thank you. And I'm doing pretty well. It was also good to kind of get beyond that. I always, I always feel a little guilty saying that, get beyond Holy Week and Easter because it's a joyful time. It's an exciting time. But for pastors, it's also a little verges on exhausting time. And we also were returning to limited in-person worship uh, on Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Easter for the first time in 54 weeks, which blows my mind. And so that added another dimension of everything, but it was it was wonderful. And it's, it's great to kind of lean into what's coming next. Awesome, awesome. That's good. I'm glad y'all had a hopefully smooth transition back into in-person. It has been. Yeah, we've been pretty careful uh, for our members and staff, but also just absolutely committed to not contributing to the spread in our community. And our folks, for the most part, have been very supportive of that. <laughs> Always a few who are a little upset with the with the cautious path we've taken, but that's gone well. And we'll be kind of in an interim period where we're still recording. We recorded rather than live streamed. Recording worship, in-person worship, probably for the next three or four months. It's not over, but we're 
we're taking steps forward and that feels really good. Yes. Yeah. I know we're in that same boat. So can, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and how you came to be where you're at? Sure. I uh, grew up as a PK, pastor's kid, and did not imagine being a pastor growing up in a parsonage. <laughs> but after a couple of different jobs, decided I would thought I would love actually being a pastor and served several congregations in uh, the East Coast, in New Jersey in particular, and then went back to for further study at Princeton Seminary to get a PhD and then taught at Luther Seminary for 14 years, taught preaching there and had a wonderful opportunity to build different resources like Working Preacher and run some grants and just a lot of fun, but ended up in the direction of seminary administration. So served as an academic dean at Luther for a while and then a president at my alma mater, the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia. Most of my work in Philly was helping uh, start and nurture a merger between two Lutheran seminaries in Pennsylvania. And part of my commitment with that process was to step away from that role once the merger was completed. So everybody could have a fresh start. And then I had an opportunity to return to the parish at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. And that's where I'm at now. And I am having an absolute ball. I don't think I've ever worked harder, which did not surprise me. And I've never, ever had more fun, which probably did surprise me a little because I loved teaching as well. So that's where I'm at now. Well, that's really cool. That's really cool. What is it like moving from the the northeast down to Minneapolis and, and heading towards the center of the country. Have you noticed anything different about the religious culture there? Is there a, a any kind of big change that you've felt as you've you've gone to those different places and spaces? Yeah, I think both the South and uh, the Midwest, and particularly the Upper Midwest, still have a little bit more of a what I would describe as a church culture. Church is still a part of people's consciousness, even if they're not attending all the time, it doesn't surprise them when friends attend, or if there are school meetings or other events that are planned around the church calendar. That is way less true uh, now in the East Coast and was almost never true in the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast. So you have a little bit more of at least a memory of church to draw on and a cultural awareness of the value and importance of church in the Midwest. But, you know, even that's waning, that's moving quickly to a place where it's less and less important, you know, to kind of lean into what we're going to be talking about in a bit. Yeah, and that's part of why I asked that question, because, you know, we see these narratives in the headlines, the most recent one being kind of all over the news about polling that has suggested that at least according to the articles that that for the first time in history, people in America are generally, quote unquote, unchurched or unaffiliated with formal organized religious groups. What is your reaction to that poll? What is your sense of what that actually is telling us, if anything, about the American religious landscape? Yeah, I first and foremost, I'm not remotely surprised, and I don't think you are, most of our listeners will be either, because this is confirming a trend that has been, you know, fairly steady for nearly half a century. We're talking mid-1970s forward. There's a slight decline that becomes more precipitous after 2000 in mainline traditions, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans. And in the last 
decade or two, that's increasingly true of evangelical traditions as well, that they have plateaued or in some cases are beginning to decline as well. So it doesn't surprise me. That doesn't mean it's not something of concern. We have whole structures of seminaries and synods or conferences or judicatories built on this expectation that lots of people are going to church and it's throwing into havoc kind of all of our normal institutions and patterns. We were built for a different kind of church than we are now. Having said that, I also think it's easy to underestimate the power of the church as it is right now. Going to church on Sunday with all the declines is still the one thing that more Americans do on a regular basis than any other activity. And that includes watching the NFL in the fall on Sundays. There are still more people going to church than doing any other single thing you can think of. That's a lot of people. And uh, so amid the, what feels like bad news, I don't want to underestimate the power and potential of the people who are gathering in our congregations, and it means a lot for them. Absolutely. And so as we're talking about kind of that decline, I always like to kind of understand kind of the historical situation. So what was the culture like before that kind of 1970s change? Uh, I guess there's that's the best way to start talking about that decline. That really like was a part of, uh, how, how would you describe that culture? And what, what are the differences that you see between then and now? Yeah, and naming culture is right on the money. I think it's easy for committed congregation members and even easier for clergy to look at these trends and feel awful, <laughs> like we just failed. Or on the other flip side, to try you know something, anything new. And I think trying things that are new are great, and we probably should own some of our own responsibility for what's going on. But the big, big shift is we no longer are a part of a culture that actively supports church attendance. And that's not the same as living in a culture that's hostile to the faith. There are Christians today who suffer challenges, trials, persecutions that we will never know. But for, you know, close to three centuries, this, the ethos of this country has promoted, supported, lifted up participation in a congregation as a real value. So from Benjamin Franklin, who himself wasn't much of a church attender, to Dwight Eisenhower, who wasn't much of a church attender, you had significant leaders across the spectrum of the culture name church as a as something important. And schools were, and to some degree still are, oriented around the church calendar. Workplaces, federal holidays oriented around church festivals. Kids used to learn to read with the New England Primer, which was a, a primary text book for nearly a century. They'd learn to read with the alphabet with things like A is for Adam in whom we all sin, B is for Babel. Like there was just kind of the language, the vocabulary of faith was part and parcel with the regular faith or the stories that you would hear or read or watch in movies or plays would reference John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Title's nonsensical if you don't know anything about Eden. <laughs> You know, Hemingway, who was very critical of the Christian faith, yet could base a story assuming his audience all knew the Apostles' Creed. So when he writes a short story kind of calling that into question, 
I believe in nada. I, mean, I don't remember it all, but I mean, he he knew er that critique would resonate because everybody knew the the regular creed. So th there's just been a kind of massive cultural shift. And again, it's not a hostility. It's more like it's an indifference. And in some ways, indifference can be harder. Hostility at least gives you something to argue with. When you know, if you talk about after Easter celebrating the resurrection of Christ, and someone says, "I don't think he was raised at all," that's at least the invitation to a conversation. If you say, "I love celebrating the resurrection of Christ." and your friend like shrugs and says, whatever. <laughs> you know, that's in some ways harder because it's like, you just don't care. <laughs> sure. And uh, throughout, you know, the global history of the of the church, where there was more hostility, that's often when the church thrived in some ways. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a friend of mine who is a church historian once observed for me that just what you're saying is absolutely right, that the period from around Civil War era to 1970s U.S., so a little over a century or so, which is when most of our traditions, which came from immigrants from Europe, got planted and grew and built seminaries and denominational structures. That century of kind of very high level of support from the culture and the flourishing of the church, that's probably the only century in 20 where that happened. Most of the time it's been persecution by the Romans or, you know, all these weird anomalies and challenges and religious wars and all kinds of things going on. And that's unusual. Uh, and, and I think it was both helpful and puzzling when I heard that. It was helpful to remember that what we're going through is more like what Christians have contended with in different ways before, which anchors me in a longer tradition, gives me more hope. But I also thought it, it sort of feels like going to the doctor and complaining about a stomachache. And the doctor says, oh, you mean you felt great the last two years? That's weird. What you're feeling now is more like what all of us deal with. <laughs> you know? And it's kind of like, huh, what do I do with that? <laughs> Everybody's got aches and pains. Why should I care about yours? Right, 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 right. Just be glad you felt good for so long. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. So so you're saying then that, that this sort of historical perspective frames that ebb and flow as, as being a little bit more ebb and a little less flow than that that this growth that we've the explosive growth that we saw from the civil war to the 1970s is a little bit of an anomaly what accounts for that anomaly yeah that's a good question and there are historians that would probably give you a better answer than I will. But when I think about, or when I've kind of thought about that period, I've described it with sort of three B words. One are boats. The religious landscape in America has been more shaped by immigration patterns than anything else by far. And lots of immigrants were coming from established church traditions in Britain and Europe and brought that with them. Now, odds are that, and again, from what I've read from qualified historians, <laughs> odds are that only about one in five Swede, you know, or German or Anglican got to the U.S. and became an active member of a church. It's easy to romanticize. Like, remember when all the Germans came after World War II? This is Lutherans, the way Lutherans talk, and how great that was. It's easy to romanticize that. But even one in five, even 20% of hundreds of thousands of people are a lot of people 
who came eager and interested and excited to be part of a congregation. That's one. Once that kind of mentality takes hold, and part of the American story is the quest for religious freedom. Now, lots of people were not fleeing. You know, this is the Puritans, the Pilgrims. A lot of people were not fleeing situations of persecution, but that became a very important part of the American story. The freedom to, re- to, to believe, the freedom to practice your religion, and is enshrined in the Constitution. So it's part of the, the identity of Americans, and it's a part of the reality of Americans. Once that takes hold, then there's a certain kind of cultural value or cachet to be a member of a church. And I, the second B is, is bank accounts. You were likely to do better in your job if you were a member of a church. And until very recently, if you're running for city council or the school board, it was kind of expected that you would say, you know, teach Sunday school, you know, somewhere in that or presidential candidates until very recently had to sort of pass a religious litmus test. It's still there differently skewed by the conservative tradition. But that was kind of all part and parcel. So if you joined, if you were a bank clerk, and the bank presidents and Episcopalian, nobody can blame you if you ended up going to the Episcopal Church, <laughs> you know, because it was in your socioeconomic interest. And then the third B is just babies, that patterns of birth have just shrunk as, as more Americans became more economically stable. And this is more true in the mainline. You know, it used to be we all had, or people had big families because that was your primary means of retirement or being taken care of in your old age. And as families move up the socioeconomic ladder, and as both parents go into the workforce to move you up the economic ladder, family size shrinks. And that hits the mainline first, that the mainline was the kind of wealthier set of traditions. Family shrink, that means fewer Lutherans are having smaller family or more Lutherans are having smaller families. And and that's always been our natural bread and butter is the kids of the people who are already there. And that begins to decline. So there's just a whole lot of kind of big cultural forces and trends. But we're at a point now where the culture, again, isn't hostile, but it's just absolutely indifferent. There's no major identified value of attending church. And, you know, alongside of that, the other factor I think that most of us experience is there's no sense of a Sabbath on a Sunday. That's part of the cultural withdrawal. It used to be church is about the only thing you could do on a Sunday. So why not go? <laughs> now malls are open and stores are open and sporting events and youth sporting events are held on Sundays. When my parents were growing up, there was never sports on a Sunday. When I was growing up, we had youth sports, usually a club, not school affiliated, and it started at two in the afternoon. When my kids came along, Sunday morning was one more slot on the calendar. And I did my share of skipping church to volunteer to be a timer at the swim meet because that was an expectation of if my kid was going to be on the swim team. So just as a little microcosm, there's kind of all this pulling back. At the same time, with no Sabbath, we all feel this intense time crunch. I mean, I know we still have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but between social media and the internet and work that knows no bounds, most of us would identify feeling like, I just don't have enough time. And in that setting, if the culture isn't pushing you towards church, and your life is kind of overwhelming you with the amount of opportunities that you have, then Sunday morning is a way bigger commitment than it used to be. And I think fewer and fewer people are, are kind of committing to it. There's a, I'll stop in a second so we can keep talking, but there was a poll not long ago, probably one of the Pew polls that asked 
two questions. Are you a regular church attender? And then the follow-up question was, what do you mean by regular church attender? And the number of regular attenders 25 years ago till now, or it's probably a couple years ago now, dropped a little bit. But what was interesting to me was 25, 30 years ago, people meant by regular attender, I'm there three out of four Sundays a week. And now they mean I'm there one out of four or five Sundays, not sorry, not a week, a month, three Sundays a month. Now someone will check the box. I'm a regular church attender. If they're there once every five or six Sundays a month, five or six weeks in a row. So even the way we think of, I mean, I can show up at church, you know, 10 times a year in my mind, I'm a regular attender, but as the pastor looking out on the pew, I know they're not there. <laughs> you know. So anyway, long answer, a lot of stuff going on that we're contending with. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that that point about the difference in between like regular and consistent is something that has changed and it is a, or maybe consistent and frequent. And so we, we probably had a culture at one point where attendance was both consistent or regular and frequent. And now it might be consistent, but it is not frequent by any stretch of the imagination. And that's a huge shift. And also the time commitment aspect that you were describing in that in a world without Sabbath, adding things to people's week is actually making some things worse in a spiritual way. And yet we can't really work on and disciple people. Sorry, using some real Methodist language there. Um, (laughs) I'm with you. And we can't do that without gathering people in one way, shape, or form for at least some level of time commitment. So, Well, this is really interesting to me because I have friends who have suggested that the issue for them has more to do with participation. They've said that their church really doesn't ask enough of them or enough in the right way of them. You know, they have the sense that really there's just not anybody in their demographic or age group participating actively and and that the attendance portion just kind of showing up to spectate on Sunday morning and give money is really not uh, that meaningful to them as a component of the practice of their faith so i'm i'm kind of interested to get a reaction from you david about those kinds of comments I think one of the outcomes of this perceived time crunch or this experienced time crunch is it heightens for all of us a desire for, in business terms, the ROI, return on investment. And that's not just true of churches. That's true of any kind of fellowship or communal group we're a part of. It's true of whether I buy a subscription to the local theater or orchestra It's true of all kinds of long-established community organizations, almost all of which are suffering right now, like when you think about it. Labor unions flourished during that same time period we were talking about, the community orchestra, the Lions Club, Rotary, bowling leagues. There's a whole slew of sort of social groups that require time, investment, commitment, time together. And the last 25 years has been hard on all of us because during that time crunch, you're sort of, and it's, I think that's understandable. I don't think this is something to get upset about. If I go somewhere and I feel like I come away, whatever, whatever it is, and I think that's an hour I'll never get back. (laughs) 
know, I am way less likely to do that. Whereas I think at a more leisurely time, you don't feel the same pressure. And so I think it, I, I think what we, you know, one of the things we wrestle with is we have built most of our institutions and most of our patterns of gathering and sharing faith, worship, adult education classes, youth group, whatever it might be, we built them for an audience that does not exist anymore, or for an audience that had a very different set of cultural demands placed upon them. And what's hard for us is to recognize, it's not that what we're doing is wrong by any stretch of the imagination, it's that what we're doing fits the life and is meaningful to fewer and fewer people. And the folks who struggle with them whether it's showing up on worship and being the only young adult, which means 10 people are going to ask you to be on a committee you know, in, in the narthex. As though it, committees ever solved any problems. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's, it's not that we're doing it wrong. It's we're not people coming to age today. It's not working for them. And so it's hard to kind of assess or maybe part of our task is to experiment and assess what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm not skeptical of that statement. I think it, at face value, I agree and understand. At the same time, the amount of time they watch YouTube videos or a TED Talk, or like there are still lots of arenas in our life where we are primarily spectators. Not that I'm advocating for spectator-only worship, but I think if we, if we delved into it a little more deeply, my hunch is it's not simply a matter of the format and more of a matter of when they leave, they're not, it's not immediately apparent to them how this next week will be informed by what just happened or that they will be helped in some way in the roles and responsibilities they have by what just happened. And that kind of immediacy of needing to connect faith to daily life, I think it's never been greater. From from my perspective, I, I think we're, and maybe COVID has offered us this blessing. I think we're moving into a, a season in the life of the church where worship is going to be more participatory when we gather, but it also is going to have like less of a primary focus for the life of the church. Uh, at least I think so. At least that's what I'm trying to do because I think where we find that value is through building community and offering and service. And, and that's what helps us to grow and experience real change. Cause the problem is, is that if we keep lowering expectations, people aren't going to experience any kind of personal change. And then thus they don't see the value of why they should come uh, and participate in this community. Am I just out in left field or David, or do you think that's something that could be happening? I think you're, I think you're probably right. And I think I don't know what the impact will be on attendance in terms of worship, but there's a way in which this could be a helpful corrective to another kind of anomaly where I think particularly for the traditions coming out of the Reformation, we have had for a long time a very strong sense of vocation that God calls us through our baptism, our life in Christ to make a difference in the world. And we often identify that with our jobs. It's way bigger than jobs. It might be your job. It's your relationships. It's your volunteering. It's your role as a citizen. It's all these different facets of our lives. And somehow, and I think it's linked to that establishment of sort of the American Christendom 
in a sense. Somehow we fell into thinking that the primary expression of my Christian life is by showing up at worship on Sunday morning. And ideally, I think Sunday worship equips you to sense God's presence in the world, to see your neighbor as fellow members of God's family, to be more attentive and attuned to their needs, and send you out equipped and excited and ready to live your Christian life in the world. So it's kind of like we thought Sunday morning worship was the big game, when really it was supposed to be practice, you know, or Sunday morning worship is, is the rehearsal hall not the concert. So we go to church to be renewed in the story, to be refreshed in our faith, to come together and be strengthened, but then to be sent. And we pay lip service to the sending, but I don't know if the rest of the service really prepares us to genuinely send people out thinking, I'm going to experience God's presence in the world, in the need of my neighbor and in other places in my life. And I feel excited and equipped to do something about that. And if we can make that shift from Sunday being the destination to Sunday being preparation. And then people leave and they're like, on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, they're like, oh, that reminds me of something that happened at church. Or that's just like what we're talking about on Sunday. Then Sunday has a whole different kind of value. And that's where, and I, 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 I know a lot of our structures from our pensions to our seminaries to our adjudicatories depend on a certain number of people coming to church and giving. So I don't want to make this next step statement lightly, but if we have fewer people in church for whom their faith matters and worship prepares them to be the body of Christ in the world, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Well, I, I certainly think that it's, and I just wrote a whole blog post for us about like kind of the collapsing Methodist structure. But at the same time, I, I, I've i tried to use language over these last several years about worship being the opportunity to learn the patterns of the Christian life. It's the place where you come and learn and have that laboratory. And uh, I don't know about your tradition, but for a lot of folks in my tradition, it's been well, if it's not exactly the way it always was, it must be wrong, even though it's only been that way since 1960. And so as we have to learn some new patterns in order to prepare Christians for the world in which we live now. And I, and I think that's an important part of the conversation of what does it even mean to do worship in a Christian sense? And what does it even mean to be a Christian in America anymore? Mm-hmm. Rather than what people might perceive it to be in, you know, believing uh, this checklist of things, which, by the way, most of us disagree upon what the checklist is. Yeah, I think from the pastor's point of view or the minister's point of view, what's frustrating is that you go into a congregation that's desperate to grow, but has zero interest in or what feels like zero interest in changing in order to grow. You know, and, and you're thinking of Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. <laughs> so from the leader, that's what's frustrating. But I have found that shifting the conversation even a little bit is really helpful. So the church I'm at now, Mount Olivet, which I absolutely love serving at, is very oriented to tr- tradition. You see the word tradition appear in lots of our literature and traditional worship and traditional, traditional, traditional. If I start with like, well, let's change some things, then it, there's a lot of anxiety. But I have found if I ask any any group of 
people I've been at in any church, whether it was as a professor or consultant or pastor, if I say, are there people that you love and are not here? And they start thinking about their nephew or grandchild or friend or sibling. It's like turning a spigot on as like, talk about some of those people. And the spigot goes on and there's just all this emotion and longing for people they love, some of whom were part of the church and no longer, and some of whom never been part of the church. And there's just all this, you know, love and longing and grief over that and then say what's worth what would you find worth changing or thinking about changing if it would make it more likely those persons would come and then you've kind of shifted from the what of do we sing three hymns or do we bring a drum set in uh, and try contemporary music to the why there are people we love that we want to be in community and communion with and we think faith would would strengthen their lives. Amen. The answer to the drum set is is yes. Yes, you do bring a drum set in. Uh, <laughs> phenomenally different experience if you just have a beat underneath everything. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I do have a, a, a sort of a question thought, a thought question. I have no idea which one it is. But it occurs to me that, you know, there is some, some difference also in our underlying philosophical assumptions about how we relate to the universe and what the universe is you know there's you know we don't need to get super technical in terms of like academic philosophy but there, there's a, just a base sort of set of beliefs and assumptions that that people have about how the universe is and who we are in it and even about you know, what Christians believe about God that has, I think, shifted a little bit over the past 50 years. You know, people are less versed in classical theology or even, you know, the the sort of church tradition, and they kind of have a caricature about about what Christians believe about God. So do you have a sense that there's a, a need to bridge that in terms of, of language and conversation about how we are in the world as well? Yeah, I was thinking earlier, Brian, when you were kind of describing what worship needs to accomplish. One of the things I've noticed is that my preaching has become more didactic or that makes it sound like my preaching has become more boring. <laughs> I hope not. It has. It, I have been more concerned with the teaching role of my preaching than I was previously. And what I find across the board, and this is for the people who are still there, so we're not even to other people yet. Anytime I open up some element of our life together, our faith, creed, prayer, a sentence, Bible study, they eat it up because our people desperately want to understand what they believe. And they never think to ask because they, they either don't realize they don't understand it, they've been just saying it so long, or they're embarrassed that they don't understand it. It's not that they're not faithful. They believe, but they don't always understand it. And so you name it, whether it's talking about the three kings or Magi and Epiphany or opening up a difference between Matthew and Luke's story in the Lord's Supper or what's a parable, they love it. And I think that's part of shaping in them what I would describe as, as a biblical or Christian imagination. And it's just um, the, the evangelical conservative churches have done that so much better than mainline churches. You ask a Lutheran Presbyterian Methodist, why do we baptize babies? Zero idea, because we do that. <laughs> you ask a evangelical why they don't baptize babies, 
And you'll get from the average evangelical member five minutes on adult baptism, a believer baptism, why that's important. That's just kind of a catechetical strategy that evangelicals adopted that we haven't. And there's good reasons for that we do need to go into. But I do think there's sort of a, not only is there sort of a loss of a biblical imagination, but the other, you know, I talked a little bit about the culture pulling back and the time crunch we have. The third element, I think, that for me shapes helps me understand where we're at right now is we're kind of at this time of a story glut. Like there are so many narratives out there that whether explicitly or implicitly try to address really big questions about our place in the world and the meaning of life. How do you measure what a good life is? And they're not all religious. I mean, their consumer consumption is a powerful narrative that has the benefit of letting you instantly assess where you are in the scheme of things based on the car you drive and the house you live in and the clothes you wear. And there's just a whole lot of narratives out there. And we're at a time when between social media and the internet and cable, and uh, there's just, it's just, they're all being pushed at us. And the tricky thing, there's so many channels, just, you know, name all of them, not just TV channels, but all channels for sharing stories. There's so many of them, they're all in competition for our attention, which means I think we kind of are increasingly in this culture of the outrageous, where if I'm making a TV show, like reality TV, the way that's exploded. And now I just saw a commercial last night for one, it strikes me as so stupid and outrageous, but it's sort of like, I don't remember the name, it's like, can you top this? Like how outrageous or crazy or dangerous can we get to hope that you and I tune in. There's a huge story glut. So our task, like we can't count our audience, our telling of the Christian story is harder and harder and harder. The flip side, the opportunity is most of those stories are really shallow. And many of them are not only not life giving, but they're life stealing. And so we still have a story that we confess is true and we believe gives life and leads to greater individual and communal life. And so I think people are starved for a meaningful, there's only, you can only watch so much reality TV you know, before you feel like horrible about yourself, or there's only so much time you can spend on Instagram or Facebook where you are convinced the life you're trying to present through carefully crafted pictures and storylines sucks compared to all the stories you're looking at uh, and so when you look at the spikes in depression or anxiety that come from social media, like we've got a story that offers value and dignity and worth and acceptance, forgiveness, it's powerful. So there's, it's both harder, like our job is harder to, because of the level of competition of all these stories, but the story we tell has never been more needed. And I think that's the opportunity. Well, I think that's a great place for us to begin to close and wrap up. And, you know, each week we try to end on a fairly strong and positive note. And we do that by talking about what's bringing us joy or at the very least just getting us through the week. So what are you guys enjoying this week? Brian, I'll let you go first. I'm the guest. I'll, I'll listen. Oh, um, couple of things. I got my second dose of the vaccine today. So, you know, there's, there's some hope right there. Also, yeah. uh, still Thank riding you. that yeah. Easter high, uh, and celebrating in-person worship and then immediately slept for like 36 hours. So, I mean, and it's, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to take a few days and just to sit back and just rest. So all of that is wonderful and giving me 
renewed life. How about that? John, what about you? That's a good question. You know, I didn't actually think about my answer to this question before you asked me that a second ago. I usually have something delightfully shallow and easily distracting. So um, maybe I should try to come up with something a little bit deeper this week. But I guess, you know, for me right now, the biggest thing is just appreciating time spent with with Sarah and our pets and our animals. It's easy to take that for granted when you're just kind of hanging out in the home office every day. But it occurred to me as I was starting to look into when I'm going to go back into, you know, regular in-person office hours that's one of the things that's been kind of dragging behind in terms of of reintroducing things into you know the in-person sphere as we go through the process of vaccination and you know continuing to try to reduce the spread of the virus you know we haven't really been in person in the office as much and so as i was looking into that it occurred to me that one of the things i'm going to miss the most at home is also the thing that drives me crazy and that's sitting down at my desk and having the dog come over and put her head in my lap and try to push me over and insist that we go outside instead of doing the writing that needs to get done or the emailing that needs to get done and all of that sorts of sort of stuff. And, you know, we've spent probably too much time together and it's really, in hindsight, been wonderful the whole time through, whether it's spending extra time with Sarah or the cats or the dog. So I think for me, that's my thought that's bringing me joy this week. All right, David. I feel like the last, I don't know, little over a year has been consumed by reacting and adapting and hanging in there and making weighty decisions and explaining and defending at times those decisions and, you know, a lot of energy in keeping us going through a very challenging period. And I say that recognizing first, we're a relatively affluent Eurocentric congregation, lots of communities had it harder. I'm not feeling sorry for myself at all, but just to recognize that's what our job has been, keeping things going. And right up to making the decision to come back in person and what will that worship look like and get everyone ready for that and doing it safely and you know communicating that and communicating again. And lately, I think as the vaccines have really taken hold and as we hear our national state leaders talk about getting back to normal kinds of gatherings and the steps forward we're making. I just find myself thinking about post-pandemic Mount Olivet, (laughs) post-pandemic ministry. And what's been interesting for me is that amid all those challenges and, you know, adapting and encouraging people and all of that, we learned a lot. And we had some really, really surprising and big successes, things we never would have thought to try, whether related to worship and reporting worship or like we have twice the number of people in Bible study than we ever had before. And a lot of that is the commitment to record the studies, to repair guides, to set up people that they can be in Zoom and make it more, way more flexible. So we have folks who used to belong or attend regularly and are now working in Chicago 
joining the Young Adult Bible Study and just all kinds of things that I'm just, I'm excited to learn about and then to think what will we bring with us to this side of the pandemic. And I sense, you know, from from Sunday, the last couple of Sundays, people are so excited. There's a lot of energy and excitement about what's to come and a kind of a renewed sense of commitment, a renewed sense of why faith matters and appreciation for the way the church extended itself to connect in a time when it was hard to connect. So I just find myself daydreaming, you know, about what's next and what to do with this energy and enthusiasm and what we've learned. And and, uh, that's been super, super empowering of late. Wonderful. That is so good. So where can people find you if they want to look you up and, and find your books and anything else that you're working on? I should have I should have that answer ready. <laughs> um, the, the books that I think are most helpful on a congregational level are the make, I wrote a series of books called Making Sense of Scripture, the Christian Faith, the Cross, Martin Luther. They're written in a conversational style and they have leader guides to form small group discussions. And they've been super helpful in getting at some of these deeper questions of the faith, recognizing our folks wanna know, but don't. So that's one. I try to write, I have a personal blog called In the Meantime, and I think it's just, I don't remember if it's davidjlos.net or davidlos.net, which I don't write on nearly as much because my parish life delightfully consumes everything I <laughs> But that's another place that when I have time to write, that's where I put it, often reflections on the texts that are coming up on Sunday and, and some other things as well. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Fun. Fun just to talk and think and do that with colleagues. So thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We've had a great time talking today. You can follow up with us on logosish.com. And if you'd like to, you're welcome to help support our podcast and local bookstores uh, by checking out our spot on bookshop.org where you can find some of David's work as well as well as the work of our other guests and just what we're reading right now. But have a great week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts or follow-ups, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and other social media at logosishpod. And we always ask, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast to help us get the word out. 